Well, if you have a copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're looking this morning at Hebrews 12, verses 12 to 17. You'll find that on page 1009 in the Church Bible if you're using that. And I'm, I know that you're going to find it helpful as usual. I say this every week. I will continue to say it to have your copy of Scripture open, reading along with me. And we're looking again at Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 17 this morning. And before we look at this, let's go to God in prayer and let's ask him to bless the preaching of his word to our souls this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come again thankful for another Lord's Day, thankful for another opportunity to hear you speak. We thank you that you have already spoken as your word was read, and we pray that you would speak in a powerful way as your word is proclaimed this morning. We ask, Lord Jesus, that your voice would be heard, that the Holy Spirit would speak to each man and woman in this place through the scriptures. We thank you for every word that you have breathed out. We thank you that all of it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us in our souls, that you would build us up in faith, that you would cast our eyes on Jesus, and that you would help us to run with endurance the race set before us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 12, and just as a reminder, the writer has just told the Hebrews the purpose of the loving chastisement of God, that that was to be a benefit to them unto holiness, unto righteousness in their lives, that their lives would be conformed to the image of Christ through those hardships and trials that God lovingly brings into their lives. And now he says to them in verse 12, therefore... Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled." That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he placed, found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This ends the reading of God's word to us this morning. Well, I've told you this in the past. One of my favorite uh, scenes in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is the part where in his dream, Christian is traveling along and he comes to the house of a man named Interpreter and he sees several things in that house or several parts of that in which the Interpreter is acting out these spiritual lessons, showing in this dream these spiritual lessons to Christian. And as he comes into the house, one of the things that his eyes are drawn to in a room is two boys sitting in chairs. The older son, the older boy's name is Passion, and the other son's name is Patience, Passion and Patience. And what Christian sees when he comes in there is that he says, Passion seemed to be very discontented, but Patience was very quiet. Christian asked the interpreter, what is the reason of the discontentment of Passion? The interpreter answered, the governor of them would have him wait for his best things till the beginning of next year, but he will have it all now. Patience is willing to wait. And then... Christian goes on to tell what he saw. He saw Passion run in and, 
And one came to him and brought a bag of treasure and poured it at his feet. And, and what Christian says is that he took it up and he rejoiced in it and he laughed patience to scorn. And then Christian said, I, I watched a while, but he had spent everything and had nothing left but rags. Then Christian asked the interpreter, what does this mean? And the interpreter said, these two figures, passion are men of the world. Patience are men waiting for that which is to come. Passion will have everything now this year. That is to say, in this world, so are the men of this world. They must have their good things now. They cannot wait till the next year. That is until the next world for their portion of goods. Now, I read that to you because nestled into the passage we have, and, and all these things in this passage seem disconnected. You have several exhortations, and then you have this example of Esau, and they don't really seem to go together. On the surface, they don't seem connected and yet I think Esau is the centerpiece of this passage. Esau is the centerpiece. And everything around it is what we're called to in the Christian life, the fruits of righteousness that God is training us in as those united to Jesus Christ. And when those things are not there, the warning of Esau appears because Esau was a member of the covenant. He was a churchgoer. He, he was uh, one of four in his home, and he was the only one who wasn't a believer in his home. His parents were believers. Jacob ended up being a believer by the grace of God. But Esau sold the covenantal birthright for a bowl of soup, for a bowl of soup. And the writer is going to set him out now as an example. Now, what's interesting is that the writer has given us this litany of examples of those who walk by faith in chapter 11. All of them. We've made it through that. We spent many months looking at that. For me, it was a very spiritually rich time. I'm grateful we went through that. And what's interesting about the book of Hebrews is that there are only two negative examples set out. The first is the example of Israel in the wilderness, chapters 3 and 4. And then after this great faith chapter with all of these saints, men and women who trusted Jesus Christ, who, who waited for the city to come, who were like patients in Bunyan's dream, waiting for the riches to come. After all of that, you have this example of Esau, who sold off the covenantal birthright, showed himself to be apostate, defected from the church of Jesus for a bowl of soup. And so this morning, we want to see several things and how all these things are really connected to what we see there in the preceding verses, verse um, verse 5 and following. And there again, I would remind you that what God has given us in those verses is a theology of discipline, a theology of chastisement. Why do hard things happen to Christians? Why, do, why does suffering happen to Christians? Why does persecution happen to Christians? Is this just the way it is because the world has fallen and we just accept it that way? And the writer says, no, 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 there's a purpose. There's a deep loving purpose of God to suffering, sickness, persecution, however that comes. And what he says is, yes, even though it is for the glory of God and the spread of the gospel, it is for you and for me in God training us in righteousness. It is for us to embrace the chastisement, though it's painful and difficult and we don't like it. It's for us to embrace it because what lays behind the chastisement we saw last week is the love of God. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord for whom the Lord loves. He chastens. Let me say this at the outset. The purpose of that is that you run with endurance the race set before you, laying aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets you, looking unto Jesus. So what's in view in this entire book 
is keep looking to Jesus by faith. And, and the danger that they are always faced with is to stop following Jesus, to stop looking to him. Now, you can't lose your salvation. That's very clear. Those who turn away from Jesus like Esau never were saved, never had the work of the Holy Spirit in their souls. They may have had some temporal privilege. They may have had some things that look like fruit in their life, but they ultimately showed themselves to be irremediable unbelievers. That's the warning. Everything God does in loving chastisement is that you fix your eyes back on Jesus and, and it's meant to keep you close to Jesus. And then notice what it's meant to do in verse 11. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful. You're not going to like it. That's, that's part of it. It's the pruning of the Father so that we bear fruit. Notice, it's sort of an exposition of John 15, isn't it? Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me, and I in him, the same bears much fruit. And if you're in me, bearing fruit, he who's in me, the Father prunes that he may bear more fruit. And so why does the painful pruning happen? Because... God wants you to bear a lot of really great grapes for a lot of really great spiritual wine. That's what Jesus said. Spiritual wine, fruitfulness, blessing. And, and notice this. Notice what he says in verse 11. Later, it's, it's painful at present. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, there's a danger there's a danger for us as Protestants because we love the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Christ has done everything for us. He kept the law for us. He took the curse of the law for us. It's by faith alone that we are accepted by God, not by anything we do and not by anything done in us. But everybody who's united to Jesus by faith will necessarily have fruits of righteousness in their life or they don't belong to him. And you are to strive to see more of that manifest in your life. You're not to just let go and let God. And how do I know that? Let's look at our text now, verse 12. Notice the call to respond when the discipline comes, when the pain comes, when the trials come. Instead of growing bitter and turning from God, this is what we're told to do. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He's picking back up on the illustration of the race that he started with at the shepherd. Run with endurance, the race set before you. It's a marathon, it's not a sprint. The Christian life is a marathon. Run with endurance, the race set before you. Run, run. And, and when we're running, then we realize, wait a minute, I'm tired, I'm weak, my knees are faint. You know, sometimes when I do the elliptical, probably because... I'm overweight, I, my knees start to give out. And I'm like, oh no, Lord, please don't let me fall off this elliptical and hit my head. And then I start, my mind just starts going somewhere it shouldn't. And I'm like, what, what am I doing? <laughs> um, that's a reality for people who run. They know what it is for their knees to grow faint. Um, you know, if you're a Georgia fan, you saw the sad game two weeks ago where Gurley had run uh, almost full-length touchdown, and then he was out of the game, probably because he had overworked his muscles or his hamstrings, and so he sat on a bike and he worked that out the rest of the game. Um, what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that you, in your Christian life, when you find that there are things out of joint, there is sin, there are issues you're not dealing with, you're not 
reading the scriptures as you ought to and delighting in it. You're not delighting in worshiping with God's people. You find yourself pulled to the world. You have laziness or carelessness or pride or arrogance or bitterness or anything. Any of those things are things out of joint in us. They are dislocated. And what the writer says is, look, God wants you to be in the best shape to run this race spiritually. So he brings the chastisement. And so here's the big thing. Firstly, we are called to respond to the loving chastisement of God in diligently, in diligently dealing with those things in our lives. Notice the calls for you to do, do something. You know, some people act like in the Christian world, there's nothing for you to do. I think that actually ends up hurting people spiritually more than helping them. Yes, we all know that the Protestant gospel is the biblical gospel is over against every other gospel. Paul would have you know that there's a true gospel and there are false gospels and that the true gospel is all of grace, all by faith, all through Christ, all what Christ has done. But there is a danger in people telling you you don't have to do anything. You absolutely need to respond to the, to the gospel, to the chastisements of God, to the sufferings that God brings into your life to make you whole. God wants to make you whole and complete, and he is conforming us into the image of his son. And so the call for you and for me is lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet. Now, I know that one of the problems we all face in the Christian life is that we, we like to see other people with weak hands and feeble knees and dislocated feet. We like to look and, and we like to see them and, and we usually do one of two things. Either we have great pity on them, which is right. It's right for us to, to have pity on those who are not running with endurance the race of faith, who have professed faith in Jesus. Or we like to judge them, which is very, very wicked and wrong. And that's what we do. We, we see things in others. We either have pity on them or we judge them. I want to read something to you. Uh, very profound, John Owen says, we are apt to pity men who are weary and feigning in their courage and under their burdens, and we do well therein. It's right for us to pity those who are weary and discouraged and who are not running with endurance. They have spent all their strength. They have no way of supply, but we are, to be, we are in no way to be gentle like that towards ourselves. In our spiritual weariness and decays, because we have continual supplies of strength ready for us if we use them in due manner. So let me break that down. If you see another believer fainting in the way, weary in the way, not running with endurance, you should have pity on them, be gentle to them, nurture them, come alongside them and try to help them. You are not to be gentle with yourself. You are to be vigilant with yourself. You are not to tolerate anything that is bringing you down, hindering you, sidetracking you, making you weary and tired in the race of faith. And it's interesting, isn't it, that most of us are gentle with ourselves and harsh with others, when we should be gentle with others and more serious and sober with ourselves. And so the writer tells us that we are called to respond to the chastening by strengthening those things in our lives. And notice the goal, verse 13, what is the goal? What does God want for you? Does God just want to break you down and break you down and break you down and make your life hard and miserable so that at the end of your life, you could say with Jacob, few and evil have been the days of my life. I've had a miserable, hard life. No, what is God's purpose? Notice 
so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. God is about making you whole and healing us spiritually. I wonder if you think about God that way. Do you think about God as just being a taskmaster saying, do this and do this and do this, and you didn't do this and this and this and this? Or do you think about him as a God who wants healing and wholeness in your life spiritually? God who wants good for you. He loves you. He loves his people with an everlasting love. He sent his son to die for us. He, gave, he spared nothing. He gave up his everlasting, infinitely beautiful son, Jesus, at Calvary under his wrath for you. And now we're to say he wants me to be whole and he wants my life to be like his son's life. And so the goal is healing. Secondly, notice that there is a call here to pursue the fruits of righteousness. Now, um, it'd be very easy for us, I think, to kind of define holiness the way we want to define it. In fact, I bet if I asked all of you, if I polled the congregation, what is holiness, probably most, and this is not a criticism of you, would have to say, you know, I don't know how to define that. I think I might find that problem at times. And so one of the beautiful things about the Bible is God tells us what holiness looks like. He tells us what the fruits of righteousness look like. And notice the first thing that he tells us in verse 14, he uses the word agonize, strive. There it is again, right? Don't not uh, let go, let God, not a just float along. Jesus did everything. You don't have to do anything. Strive, pursue. Notice this. Strive for peace with everyone. The word is actually um, in the Greek. It is related to the word for persecute. Just kind of weird. You think about the zeal that those who persecute God's people use. You see that in the book of Acts, that the, the, the Jews that hated the Apostle Paul and hated Jesus chased him from city to city to city. They would actually, they would go on a short-term mission trip to get rid of Paul. And then they'd go on another one and another one. That, that's the zeal they used against the Apostle of Jesus. That's the zeal we're to have against our own sin and for the fruits of righteousness. And notice he gives us this very clearly defined, very clearly defined, strive for peace with everyone and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let me break this down for you. There are two categories the Bible always sets out for you. Your relationship to men and your relationship to God. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Pursue peace with all men and pursue holiness before the Lord. And what he's saying, and as we look at this, that's really the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, our duty to God, our duty to men. Jesus summarized that in saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. So pursue peace with everybody and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, what the writer's telling us when he says to pursue peace with everybody is not just leave everybody be and just... Try to have this life free from any kind of turmoil. That's not what he's saying. Surely it includes avoiding conflict in a healthy, godly way, but there's a proactivity to it. You know, as I thought about this, this verse is deep. This verse goes very, very, very deep. It summarizes really everything the scripture teaches. Pursue peace with all men. John Owen says, surely that includes your enemies, very wicked men and people that persecute you. Pursue peace with all men, not just the people you like, not just in the home where it should be happening first and foremost, but our Lord Jesus said, bless those that persecute you. 
pray for those who seek to harm you. Do good to all men as you have opportunity. Be a blessing. And, and the agonizing unto that means there ought to be in us a conscious, purposeful zeal for being a blessing unto others. And not just the people you want to be a blessing to. Listen to me very carefully. It is far, far too easy to say, I want to be a blessing to this person. I want to be a blessing to that person. This person has a lot. They don't need me to be a blessing to them. This person lacks, they have nothing. They need me to be a blessing to them. This person is my dear friend and they're going through a very hard time. I need to be a blessing to them and pursue peace for them. The writer of Hebrews says, pursue peace with all men. I mean, it is unbelievably broad in its description that starts in the home. That starts in the home. It starts in marriage relationships. It starts with our children. It starts then in our church. It moves out into our workplaces and the community and for our leaders. There's this great story about John Calvin who the reformers were persecuted greatly. They, 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 their lives were always on the brink of being snuffed out. And Calvin in his preface to um, the, the king of France, because he feared that the king of France was going to try to through military action, snuff out the Reformation. And Calvin wrote, in, he dedicated his um, commentary, I think on Romans, to the king of France in 1541. And he said basically to him, let us live, let us live, and we will do you good. That was Calvin's response to the king of France. It wasn't, we got to get rid of this man. We got to get a new leader in. We got to get new leaders. How dare they tell us what to do? Calvin said, let us live and we will do you good. Now, think about also in the church, how much strife there is in churches because people are not seeking to live at peace with all men. They're not thinking, how can I bless my neighbor? They're thinking, why don't I get what I want? And that's, that's a dislocated joint. And God's saying, let me straighten that up for you. The church should be the place where the richest fruits of righteousness are manifested, where people are giving up whatever their preference may be about something, and they're worshiping God together and loving each other and serving each other. We, we saw that in Acts. The Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, and they have everything in common, and they minister to each other as they have needs. So that's the first thing. The second thing we're called to Pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, I could preach a whole sermon on that. I know I could. And so what I'll say just briefly is that is holiness that's in Christ. There's positional holiness in Christ. This book actually says that. It says that um, he, was, he made perfect through his offering of himself up all those who are being sanctified. He perfected, he made them holy through the offering of himself on the cross, all those who are being sanctified. And that means, that means that we don't move away from Christ, but we go to Christ for holiness. It's not a call to legal performance. It's not a call to just shape up, work harder, try harder. It's a call for you to stay close to the Savior. So when there's sin in your life, the remedy is not just stop it. The remedy is I need the Savior to forgive me and cleanse me, and I need power in him, and I need the holiness I get through his death on the cross. And, and here, I'm just going to say this briefly. 
The problem with the Hebrews was that they were about to move away from Jesus Christ. And in moving away from Christ, they would be moving away from true holiness, and they are moving away from heaven. Notice what the writer says in the strongest language possible, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's not because you've lived such a godly life you're going to go to heaven, but if you don't pursue holiness and you wake up and find yourself in hell, that is your fault. The writer of Hebrews has said, pursue holiness, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, trust in him, abide in him, be putting sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit, without which no one will see the Lord. Now notice, thirdly and finally, the writer gives us this warning of unbelief, and it's this, this example of Esau, after telling us to, to guard against a root of bitterness, and after telling us what that does, bitterness against God and his ways, bitterness against his ministers, bitterness against his gospel, bitterness because of the persecutions that come. I think that's the context of that. And then he gives us this example. He says, see to it, look intently that no one is sexually immoral or profane like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, Esau is very difficult. It's actually not easy. If you went back to Genesis 27, and you read the account, Genesis 25, Genesis 27, Esau is one of two. He's, he's, he and his twin brother Jacob are born to um, Isaac, who is the son of promise. So it has everything to do with God's covenantal dealings, his covenant promises, his promise of redemption, that he's going to send a redeemer, that the inheritance, it's all bound up in that. That's why we have Esau. Esau, it's just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's all going right there. And he's saying, just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were examples of faith, Esau, who was in the covenant family, who was in the visible church, who had the promises of God, and in fact had the birthright, gave it up for a bowl of soup. Now, there's a couple things you need to know. First, you need to know what the birthright was about. In the Old Testament, the firstborn son got the best blessing. And specifically, covenantally, and that blessing oftentimes came under the language of earthly things, earthly bounty and blessing. And so on a, on a surface reading, it looks like what the covenant birthright blessing is, is just you're going to have a great life and, you're gonna, and people are going to serve you and, and it's going to be great and you're going to have a lot of good things. And that's not what the covenant blessing is about. The covenant blessing was about redemption and living in the new heavens and the new earth and having the inheritance in Christ. And it was a gospel blessing. It was a gospel blessing. It went to the firstborn son because Jesus is the firstborn son. And everything in the Old Testament is preparing you for that. And the firstborn son gets all the blessings of God. And the firstborn son, Jesus Christ, gets the inheritance. Hebrews 1 tells us that. And then he gives that inheritance to his people. So that's what the birthright's about. Esau should have gotten the birthright. But what Esau did was he looked at the, the covenant blessings of God and he only saw them as earthly things. And so when he was hungry and his brother had, um, he had come back from hunting and he was hungry and his brother who was a cook um, could, could give him some food because he, he said he was famished. Esau sold off the gospel, sold off the gospel for a bowl of soup. Now, you may say, and this is very difficult, you have to listen carefully. It could be easy for us to say, 
well, then you're saying we have to be perfect because, you know, a bowl of soup seems pretty insignificant. That's not what the writer's saying. The writer's giving us an avenue and a, a view into Esau's heart. And it's interesting, if you went back to Genesis 25 and 27, you would find, um, you would find Esau giving us a confession of unbelief. And, and when his brother, when he's there with Jacob, he says to his brother, give me some soup. What is this birthright to me? What is this birthright to me? That's, that's the way a lot of people approach the gospel. What is the gospel to me today? How is this helping me today? What am I getting out of this? How is my life better? In, in one sense, Esau thought, thought that God's church was a health, wealth, prosperity church. Esau thought that the blessing was going to be a, a world full of bowls of soup. That's what he thought it was. And so he traded off what he thought was a world full of bowls of soup, gaining lots of things and, and possessions and success here, and he traded it off for one bowl of soup because there's no different. There's no difference. If, if it's all about hedonistic blessings here, what's the difference if you trade off the gospel for a single bowl of soup or if you trade it off for a whole world full of bowls of soup? There's no difference. Now, the warning to us is that we would view the things of Christ in light of their eternal dimension, and we would say there is an eternal reward for those that continue trusting Christ. There is, there is a world full of bowls of soup coming. You, are, you could never gain as much power and possession and privilege in this world now as you will have one day in the new heavens and the new earth. And so... We never want to say with Esau, what is this birthright to me? What is the gospel doing for me today? Why is my life so hard? Why do I have these persecutions? Why is this so tough? Why, why, do, I have to, why, do, these people, why do I have to live next to people who don't like Christians and, and don't like me? And, and we don't say that. We say we have Christ and we have everything in him. And the inheritance is ours. And we are sons in him. And he is the firstborn son. And he got all the blessings of God. And let me just say this at the very end. Notice that what God is saying to you, notice verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What, what, made, what was the difference between Jacob and Esau? Jacob was a lying, swindling, fearful man. Jacob's in heaven. Esau's in hell. Jacob was a lying, deceiving, swindling, fearful man, and he's with Jesus in heaven and Esau's not. What's the difference? The difference is the grace of God. Jacob saw that it wasn't about a bowl of soup, but it was about a savior. Jacob knew that the covenant blessing was about the redeemer to come, and Jacob knew he needed a savior. Jacob knew that he was sinful. Jacob felt his need for Christ, and Esau didn't. And so Esau's life went on to manifest that. He married pagan women. He lived for himself. He tried to establish his own kingdom. He set up a nation that became Israel's greatest enemy. He, was, he gave in. He wanted the world. He was passion. He was not patience. He wanted the world. Jacob understood there was redemption coming. God is a savior. And that's the call to you. The call to you is when you examine your life, when you look at all your in and out activities, when you look at everything going on in your life, Behind everything that happens and pressing through all that is the cry of your heart, I am a sinner and I need Jesus Christ.
And if it is, then you, you have not fallen short of obtaining the grace of God. It's all by grace. It's all unmerited. And if you look at the ins and outs of your life and you can't say that, and maybe even me asking that question, it's not even registering because it won't register with people that are unconverted unless God's going to convert them. If you look at the details of your life and all that you do and all that you care about and the cry of your heart is not, I need a savior, then you are an Esau. And so the warning of Esau here is to turn to the one who redeems Jacob's, who redeems swindlers and deceivers, who, who came to redeem people who know how sinful they are. I want to read a beautiful hymn to you as I close. Um, John Newton, in his Alni hymn on Esau, interesting, if you ever Google Alni hymns and start reading them, John Newton wrote all these hymns on different portions of scripture. And he had one, I, I Googled one for, for Esau, and sure enough, he had one on Esau. I think that he's wrong, let me say this first. Esau never sought repentance. Almost everybody I've listened to in church history reads the last verse here that Esau, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, was rejected because he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. He never sought repentance with tears. He sought the blessing with tears. If you go back to Genesis 25, he said, oh, my father, bless me after his brother got it. Give me a world full of bowls of soup. He never had repentance over his sin. He never saw that he needed Jesus. Even John Newton, sadly, misinterprets this verse, but what John Newton doesn't misinterpret is this. Newton said, no better than Esau am I. No better than Esau am I. Though pardon and heaven be mine, to me belongs nothing but shame, the praise and the glory be thine. No better than Esau. What makes the difference? Those who see and feel their need for Christ have not failed to obtain the grace of God. I want to ask you as we close and you think about all the things that we've talked about, have you fallen short of the grace of God? If you answer that question, I hate my sin, I know I need more of Christ, I know I need things that are dislocated in my life healed, then I would say that's a very encouraging sign that you have not. If you are looking intently at Jesus, if you are like, I can't wait to get out of here, I hate hearing this, I don't want to hear this, this is a burden, this is a weight, you're probably an Esau. You're probably an Esau. And you know what? There's no laughs, no jokes. It's, it is one of the most sobering questions that you have to ask yourself, where am I with regard to the grace of God? If you have not come to Jesus Christ, come to him, turn to him, cry out to him. Obtained. The grace of God is free. It's free to any, any who see their need for a Savior. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to us. Let's pray. Father, we have considered so much, and we need you to take these things and to write them indelibly on our, our hearts and our minds by your Holy Spirit. We pray that not one person in this room would fall short of obtaining your grace. We pray that there would not be one Esau among us. We pray that you would help us to take these things seriously. We pray that you would give us grace to receive your chastisement and to strengthen the weak hands and the feeble knees and make straight paths for our feet in running the race of faith. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would draw near to us and strengthen us even as we come to the supper now. 
We pray these things in your name. Amen.